Everyone got that? Let's do that one more time. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for joining. Great to see you all. Looking forward um, for any newcomers here. I see uh, one newcomer. We're going to share on the malacha for the next uh, 15, 20 minutes, and then we'll open it up for any tangents or ideas folks want to pursue. This is a heavy one. This is a heavy one. There's so many directions we could go with Kotev, Kotev. The 32nd Malacha is Kotev, writing, writing. More specifically, according to the Talmudic rabbis, one that is engaged in a writing of two or more letters, not writing one letter, but two or more letters. In the construction of the Mishkan, writing, and specifically writing two letters or numbers, was used to match corresponding planks and boards with one another. Think of construction work. We might further say that one letter by itself is perhaps merely a squiggle, but two letters can form a word and have meaning. It is worth noting that Hebrew has no one-letter words. Isn't that interesting? Whereas English and other languages do have words that contain one letter, such as A or I. On a rabbinic level, even writing one letter, letter is kotave, as opposed to a biblical level, that is. Writing with foods, such as ketchup or icing, um, would not be kotave, as long as one intends to eat that food on Shabbat itself. Okay, so let's think about language. Let's think about language. Language has always been complicated from the start. We learn in the Torah about the power of language. What's the first case? What's the first case in the Torah you would think of as being, yeah, Good. The most obvious case here that has to do with language, um, the story of the Tower of Babel, Migdal, Bav, Migdal Bavel. God seeks human unity, but also wants diversity. But diversity without collaboration and respect leads to moral chaos. 
On the other hand, unity without diversity leads to tyranny. Sometimes the tyranny of an individual tyrant, and sometimes the tyranny of the majority and the oppression of difference. In the, in the story, this is symbolized through language. God wants us to work together, but also be different. The passage begins by informing us that all spoke one only one language with few words. So in response to the oppressive unity of the people of Babel, God mixes up their language. Rashi understands this to be the origin of many different languages and spreads humanity across the globe. The Midrash asks the question, why did God destroy the society of Sodom, but only scattered the society building the Tower of Babel? Get it? Sodom destroyed, but Migdal Bavel, Tower of Babel, only, only um, scattered. The answer given is that the people involved with the Tower of Babel demonstrated that they love each other by speaking one language. So God didn't want to rid them of the world uh, entirely, and therefore only scattered them. But the people of Sodom hated each other, so God wanted to eliminate that from the world. Indeed, it stands to reason that understanding each other can, can lead to love, and failing to understand one another can lead to fear and hate. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs explains the challenge of how different languages block us from communicating with one another. We often miss the significance of this word, Shema, to listen, because of what I call the fallacy of translatability. The assumption that one language is fully translatable into another. We hear a word translated from one language to another and assume that it has the same meaning in both. But often it does not. Languages are only partially translatable into one another. The key terms of one civilization are often not fully reproducible in another. The Greek word me megalopsychosis, for example, Aristotle's great souled man, who is great and, know and knows who he is, carries himself with Aristotle aristocratic pride is untranslatable into a moral system like Judaism, in which humility is a virtue. The English word tact has no precise equivalent in Hebrew, and so on. And friends, this is one of the great conflicts around how much to incorporate English into um, Jewish prayer, um, uh, communal prayer, that is. The reform movement, of course, has no problem. Um, there's some tensions, but, but by and large, no one's going to push back to incorporate English prayer in reform synagogues. Orthodoxy also has very little problem because it's taken for granted that it's going to be an all Hebrew service. The conservative movement has the most struggle with this in regards to when to incorporate English and, uh, and, when, to, and when to stick to the Hebrew. Traditional conservative congregations, of course, will stick almost entirely to Hebrew, bracketing things like prayer for the government or prayer for Israel. Um, but liberal conservative grapples the way reform used to um, with how much English to pop into the service. And one of the challenges there is, geez, are we saying the same thing? Like these English words, do they in any way, this is only one of the many challenges, of course, are we actually saying the same thing? Because as Sachs talks about here, the fallacy of translatability, the fact that Shema like, listen does not really get at what Shema is saying. Shema is a much, has a much deeper context um, that, that, what, that we could explore at another time. Famously and controversially, Rabbi Sachs also once taught in the, in the course of history, God, quote unquote, in the course of history, God, God has spoken to mankind in many languages through Judaism to Jews, Christianity to Christians, Islam to Muslims. It turns out he was later pressured to retract this statement on religious pluralism that may seem obvious to many of us. Nonetheless, he was pressured to retract that, um, this idea that God speaks different languages to different peoples. One of the most complex dimensions of language is an attempt to explain divinity or prove that there is a God. Uh, 
Okay, so now we're going to move into a section where we talk about proofs of God. Does God exist? Okay, there's three classical philosophical approaches to proving the existence of God. These are the three classical philosophical approaches to proving the existence of God. First, ontological arguments. That means a priori abstract reasoning suggesting the necessity of a perfect being, right? For the world to exist, there must have been a perfect being who put it into place. The cosmological arguments means there's a first mover, which is God. This is, this is the question of, well, if the world, like something had to start everything, of course, you can ask the question then, well, then where did God start? Um, and then you get also can't really get anywhere. But if the if like even if you say Big Bang or whatever you say, whatever was the beginning of time, to say, well, where did that come from? Then thirdly is the teleological arguments, the idea that the order of the world and universe shows that there must be a purpose that was designated for life. There's a purpose to life. And if there's a purpose, who put this purpose in place? But today, rather than offering proof, many speak of beauty, like the beauty of the world or of gratitude. They express their feeling that the world is just so beautiful and wonderful that they need an address for their gratitude. Others talk about how they've experienced miraculous divine help. A belief in God can also lead to optimism about the future and to a sense that life is sacred. But how is one to explain that in tangible terms? How can that be expressed in words? For some, the entire matter can't be discussed through a prism of objectivity, but rather only through the human realm of subjectivity. This is to say that the realm of consciousness is far deeper and further reaching than the realm of language and cognition. According to Rambam and his negative theology, we can't really say anything specific about God at all. Rather, we can only describe what God is not. God is not mortal and has no physical features. Rambam states, Maimonides states expressly that any description of God's physicality, such as God's taking the Israelites out of Egypt with a strong hand, is strictly metaphorical. While we can't find adequate language to prove the existence of God, perhaps more important than the question of whether we can believe in God is whether God can believe in us. More than focusing on any theological and philosophical concerns, we should be spiritually focused on the moral concern of how we are doing. In keeping with the need to move the question back to personal responsibility, the Kutzka Rebbe famously answered the question, where is God? With wherever we let God in. To the sages, more important than believing in God is loving God. This idea is expressly stated in the opening of the Shema prayer. We are commanded via hafta et Hashem elokecha. Via hafta, right after the Shema, right? You are to love God. There is no corresponding biblical mitzvah to believe in God. There's no mitzvah that says uh, that we must believe in God. Of course, the first of the Ten Commandments is it starts with Anochi, I am, I am God. So it's sort of implicit in there, um, but it's not an explicit, an explicit mitzvah. Love as an emotion and a deed can be more powerful than a faith statement or logical proof. What would it mean to say, I believe my child exists? Okay, great job. <laughs> but to say I love my child is much more profound. It assumes you, it assumes some level of belief that there actually do exist. That's probably helpful. Um, but the love moves to a different level. It moves us toward experience. It moves us from abstraction to experience. And religion ultimately is not about proofs, but about experience. Consider this poem from Leonard Cohen, the great rabbi Leonard Cohen, titled Fun. It is so much fun to believe in God. 
you must try it sometime. Try it now and find out whether or not God wants you to believe in him. <laughs> it's about trying. It's about experimenting. It's about experience. Perhaps all of the language trying to explain God is merely a crutch that we find ourselves using, even as we ultimately need to get beyond that point. We can use the idea of a personal God, a relatable God, an anthropocentric vision, all expressed through human language, to realize that divinity is beyond it all. This concept is referred to in Kabbalah as Ein Sof, literally meaning there is no end. Our intellectual and spiritual lives cannot be reduced to purely physical terms. The, physica the physicalist, materialistic worldview that all reality is concrete has major flaws, and thus any secular logical attempts to prove or disprove God through language is flawed. While Nietzsche famously proclaimed that God is dead, he also wrote, I'm afraid we are not rid of God because we still have faith in grammar. We still have faith in grammar. We are very wedded to language as a means to communicate, to learn, and to pray. By the way, just to state the obvious, although you never know what's obvious to, to who, when Nietzsche said God is dead, he wasn't saying, oh, in modernity, there, we now know there's no God or the theological proofs of God are, are dead. What he meant to my understanding based on, on interpreters of Nietzsche I have read is that the construction we had of divinity has expired. We have evolved to a different, a different stage and merely having a word called God represent something that is so far beyond comprehension, that concept has expired. I know a rabbi in Israel who says, why would you talk about God in America? It's going to alienate every Jew. The word is so meaningless and so futile, right? Use some of the Hebrew words to talk about divinity, which offer much more profundity. In fact, you know, what's funny is I was eating dinner a few nights ago and my six-year-old son came over and he says, he says, Abba, what does God mean? And I said, and I wasn't sure what he was asking. I said, what do you think it means? He's like, no, no, what does the word mean? I, I just don't know what the word means. I said, I don't know what the word means either. I, I said, but it, it's what in Hebrew we sometimes call Hashem. He says, oh, Hashem is God? That's all he was asking. He just didn't know what the word meant. I thought he meant like, what is God? He just meant like, what is this word people are using called God? I never heard of that. Like, I know who Hashem is. He calls her, he calls her feminine, by the way. He says, Hashem talks, that she talks to him or she, or she protects him. Um, language is about ways to share a common experience of living in the world, of articulating a shared reflection of reality as it has been presented to us. Edmund Husserl, a German philosopher and founder of phenomenology, in his 1931 book, Ideas, A General Introduction to Pure Phenomenology, argued that we must liberate ourselves from the captivity of the accepted world. We have come to see everything through an accepted filter of facts and truths and bracketed off most of reality and the depths of consciousness. But we can see more and experience more. Indeed, moving beyond convention, and into the depths of subjective experience is the essence of spiritual seeking. We find ourselves so limited because we consider the options, those which have been presented to us. But at, the, at every moment, there are multiple ways of being, multiple ways of engaging, multiple ways of leading. <laughs> I wonder if his picture makes his ideas more or less exciting. He looks really excited about uh, the ideas he's teaching. <laughs> But uh, before, but, um, before we can go deeper and even beyond the depths, we need to find our inner calm and turn off the noise. 
We must be aware of our inner turmoil and discover strategies to keep inner peace within these tense moments. Before we can calm our interior experience of ourselves, we will first need to overcome fear. Fear, like anger, is one of the great barriers towards growth. What are the main steps to overcoming fear? Number one, name the resistance. Number two, surrender to that resistance. Number three, welcome, welcome. And number four, embrace or love, okay, as, as fear emerges. We can reopen choice for ourselves and disempower our small inner voice of critic. We must stand tall and push out our inner saboteur. Each of us is capable of moving beyond language, conquering internal barriers and going deeper. So let's look to the East. Now we're going to pivot East. Buddhism is based on the four noble truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path that frees one from suffering. Buddhism suggests that in order to end suffering, one must follow the noble eightfold path. Now, Jainism. In Jainism, one of the most basic ideas is Anik Antavada. Anik Antavada, the idea that different points of view perceive reality differently, and therefore there are no points of view that are fully true. Great emphasis is placed on equality of life, spiritual independence, nonviolence, and the fact that an individual's behavior has immediate consequences. In Jainism, self-control is crucial for one to understand the soul's true nature. Now turning back to the West, let's consider Avicenna, one of the most influential philosophers of the Islamic golden age. Avicenna presented an idea called floating man, according to which he described the immateriality of the soul. He encouraged his students to imagine themselves suspended in the air. Think of this for a moment. Think of yourself suspended in the air. When one hangs in the air, one will experience an isolation from one's senses and not have sensory contact with one's own body. With the isolation from the senses, Avicenna argued that a person would still have consciousness. He believed that one couldn't logically prove a soul, but rather one needs to experiment to find it and experience it. Now, just a reminder, Avicenna is from the 10th century, 10th, early 11th century uh, common era. And... Um, uh, and Rambam is reading Avicenna. He's very influenced by him. He calls him Ali ibn Sina. And the, when the Rambam read Avicenna, and uh, he was deeply influenced by his ideas, as that's how he ac accessed, one of the ways he accessed Greek, Greek philosophy. Professor Daniel Matt, uh, a noted contemporary scholar of Kabbalah, writes, the creative pool of nothingness is the pre-conscious, the kadmut hasechel which precedes, surpasses, and inspires both language and thought. Okay, so this is just a reminder, this idea of ayin. Ayin means nothingness, and it's the pre-conscious state that, goes be, that precedes language and thought. Of this, Dovbeer of Mesrich said, thought requires the pre-conscious, which rouses thought to think. The pre-conscious cannot be grasped. Thought is contained in letters, which are vessels which the pre-conscious is beyond the letters, beyond the capacity of the vessels. This is the meaning of the verse found in Job. Wisdom emerges out of nothingness. Okay? So that's very interesting. Uh, that would be a, a, fun, a fun verse to meditate on. That chokhmah, wisdom, chokhmah, 
comes out of ayin, out of nothingness, which you would say, what is that nothingness? But here we see a definition of nothingness, which is the pre-conscious divine slash human state that proceeds or perhaps transcends or surpasses language and thought. It is what in, in transcendental um, meditation uh, one would be seeking to tap into. One other way to understand this is through the idea that communication is about far more than just the words we speak. Albert Merabian, a contemporary psychologist and pioneer in the field of nonverbal communication, offered what has famously become known as the 7%, 38%, 55% rule, right? His research showed that only 7% of our feelings and attitudes are conveyed through our words. The tone of our voice constitutes 38% of the communication, while 55% is conveyed by body language. In fact, communication happens in subtle and meaningful ways beyond words. So too, the soul and human consciousness at large perceive far more than the limited messages that words can convey. Then we look at, at some stories in religious texts that appear fantastical, perhaps even absurd, and we wonder what they're doing there in the text. Rabbi Dr. Arthur Green writes, I know that religious language is not just a collection of stories, but an attempt to put into narrative form a truth so profound that it cannot be told except when dressed in the garb of narration. Of course, in Kabbalah, garb is very important. This idea that everything has clothes and has an exteriority to it that does not, that, that hides the interiority. What holiday friends are we celebrating in two weeks? Or is it next week? I, mean, I think it's two weeks, two and a half weeks. What holiday are we celebrating? Purim. 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 Yes, thank you. Purim is one of the most profound holidays. I mean, we, we make it for kids. And so it's about candy and hamantashen and costumes and lots of fun and games and screaming in the synagogue. And, um, but actually it's a very deep holiday. It's a very deep holiday. And there's um, so much to say about it. But this idea of starting to see the world as um, all truths as having clothes on them. All truths have clothes and those clothes mask um, and, uh, and, and cover up and hide in ways that are elucidating, but also deceiving um, deeper truths, deeper truths that are present. And that is what Green is saying, following a long tradition, that all the narratives of the Torah have a much deeper essence to what is happening. Yes, we can read the Torah about as human stories. This is about this person and that person. And that is one level of the wisdom, right? Why did this person say that? Why did they do that? And what's that ultimately teach us about human psychology? But if you go deeper into the stories, we can see in the narrative that something else may be happening there for us. Rabbi Binyamin Lau, who's a noted contemporary Israeli uh, thinker and activist, writes about the sages' engagement with language. Better in his eyes was a single measure of reflection on what is written and given than massive speculation above and beyond to the very limits of apprehension. Here's what he's talking about. One who sees Rabbi Yishmael in a dream should anticipate wisdom. It says in the Talmud, Rabbi Yishmael's teachings contain straightforward logic and with it lucidity, simplicity of language and an aversion to intellectual games. Attributions to him have no super, su, 
superfluity of language or florid expressions. He sought to strip scripture of anthropomorphisms and to excise unnecessary metaphor and imagery. But Rabbi Akiva's teachings sought to penetrate to inner depths with profundity and potency of language. He did not shrink from anthropomorphism, but rather he preserved the concrete in scripture, cherished imaginative meanings, added metaphorical embellishments, and created images of the supernal world. This is really a gift what Rabbi Lau gave us here, because he really um, offered a whole philosophy of language based on the Rabbi Yishmael's approach in the Talmud versus Rabbi Akiva's. Ra Rabbi Yishmael wanting to move away from metaphor and, and superfluous uh, ideas and, and, and more poetic expressions and move towards concrete literal language and Rabbi Akiva's understanding of this profundity of language in a different, in a different sense. And it's worth thinking for ourselves, which one, which one are we? Do we like really clear, really clear explicit language or do we like, do we like mysterious language? This also has to do with the type of, of Torah we like to learn. Do we like to read stories from Chumash? Do we like to read abstract Kabbalah? Do we like Jewish law or Jewish ethics? Right, the type of language that resonates for us and its clarity, its con its concreteness, and like and the like. Okay, on Shabbat we are encouraged to use verbal language, conversations, reading praying, learning, but we are invited to consider a new relationship to writing. Through the process of writing, we create a lasting form of communication. Written language is positively transformative, but can also be deeply hurtful and damaging to others. This is all the more true in our age of interconnectedness, where on social media and beyond, words are not only saved and stored, but can go viral. May we always choose our words so carefully, understanding that they can never adequately describe the full truth, but also nonetheless how much they can affect others. In doing so, we'll learn not only to be more cautious with our words, but also how to listen and how to read more carefully. Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. said, a riot is the language of the unheard. You've heard him say that before? A riot is the language of the unheard. When we don't listen to others who need to be heard, moral complaints will grow. In learning to listen to the language that comes from our depths, we can learn to listen to others. Doing so is not only spiritually rewarding, but also morally necessary. There's a Hasidic Shavuot, a teaching that one of the Shivim Panim Torah, the 70 faces of the Torah, is not Panim Mamash, is not actual face or expression, but rather, ready friends, one of the 70 faces revealed at Sinai, which we read last week in Parshat Hitro, is shtika, silence. One of the 70 faces of revelation is silence. It's worth thinking about what it means to be in a covenantal revelatory moral relationship through silence. How is it possible not to be heard? How is it, how, how is it healthy not to be understood through the human channel of language? With all of that said, I think that communication by silence is mainly for God, and I think we should exercise silence as resistance with great caution, since silence has the potential to be politically, has, since silence has the potential to be, to be political and politically dangerous. While committing, at, while committing to Shmirat HaLashon, the ethics of speech, I think speaking out in resistance, even too much and even with imperfection, is more in line in many ways with Jewish values than waiting for perfect speech to bubble forth all the time in the privilege of our silence.
There is, of course, a time for silence, but each of us must learn the art of emerging and retreating. The avoda, the spiritual growth curriculum, curriculum, is different for each of us here. Okay, to conclude, the malacha of Kotev then reminds us to be mindful of not only our oral speech, but also our written word. Reflecting on writing on Shabbat allows us to take a step back and contemplate the writing we have engaged in during the past week, and will again do so in the coming week. Kotev is the reminder we all need to choose carefully when to be silent and when and how to speak up. Okay, friends, that was a long one, but somehow we got through it in uh, 25 minutes. So let's uh, open the floor for thoughts and questions folks have on this material or anything related or unrelated. <laughs> I have a question about pre-conscious. I, I, I don't think I really understand it. Could, okay. it is it like what happened before the world was created? Oh, in great. The or? Okay, okay, great. So normally in the Freudian sense, we talk about the unconscious, the subconscious and the conscious. The conscious, that of which we can hold because we're so aware of it. The subconscious, that which is like the iceberg just below the surface of the water. It's there, it's so connected to the conscious and it's connected to the unconscious. And yet it is not totally graspable. It's like we're aware of it, but can't fully articulating. And then which we're very aware of is the unconscious the part of that is informing our mind and informing our being, but which we're kind of unaware of. Um, I mean, that one we use so loosely in, in English language that she unconsciously did X, Y, or Z. She, it's like unthinkingly, unknowingly, um, we all engage in unconscious acts. Now the pre-conscious is, um, is, is fascinating. Um, the pre-conscious is really dealing, as you're pointing to there, uh, Lauren, with the primordial sense, this primordial state. What we would talk about this in the human being, the pre-conscious state would be that of, of what we would typically call the womb, the womb. Now, I don't know in any sense um, when uh, memory, um, like when memory might begin, within the womb, which is to say that um, unconscious memory, I don't mean conscious memory, obviously nobody has a conscious memory of the womb, right? But at what stage in the womb might there be unconscious memory, uh, which is to say some awareness, some awareness, um, and yet it's pre-conscious because it's before life. It's before life, it is before, it is before any consciousness at, at all exists. And the divine realm, we're, we're dealing here strictly with the primordial state that, um, uh, and you're right, this is very complicated because what would it mean for divinity to be pre-conscious? Um, and one way we might articulate that is that to be conscious of the self, there needs to be the other. You can't know the self until there is the other. This is one of the ideas of why Chava is needed in addition to Adam, right? This one first human being, let's bracket the whole gender components of this, but the one first being created in the world needs a partner because there's no awareness of self without awareness of other. And if there's no awareness of self, then there's no responsibility. There is no self-identity and there is no 
there is there is no um, there is uh, nothing of any meaning. There's just an immersion as like an infant has, even younger than infant, a newborn has within themselves an unawareness of a self. And so, so to God in a primordial state before there is the other, there's only God, um, is you might suggest is in a pre-conscious state because there is yet a birth of an other. And once the other is born, that of humanity, there is now a consciousness of divinity that emerges in relationship to another. Now that is all just kind of um, <laughs> an abstract idea which may resonate or may feel, to feel totally absurd. But yes, this idea of the pre-conscious as, um, as the primordial. But let me say one last thing, and it's more of a question than an answer, um, which is where the future and the past intersect. And where the future and the past intersect is in the Ein Sof, in the eternal, where time, time falls away. Time falls away. And what it means for time to fall away is that when we engage in spiritual acts that connect to, to the Ein Sof, we are tapping into the pre-conscious. We are transcending con consciousness. Um, we are transcending subconscious and non-conscious, which means it's there, but I, I don't, I, I, I'm not holding it, into the pre-conscious, into the primordial space of, of ultimate otherness. It's what Levinas would call the ethics of alterity. We, we truly transcend the self-consciousness into a deeper space. I hope that made any sense. Um, can I just say one thing about the, um, about the idea of consciousness in a newborn or in a oh, yeah. prior to birth? Yeah. One um, amazing, um, I, I heard some lectures, I can't remember the name of the neonatologist who works with, uh, or perinatologist works with babies you know, in the womb and, and post talking about in the, in the third trimester of pregnancy, the tremendous, you know, developmental growth of the brain and that um, the exposures in that time really organize the brain and they organize the baby's brain in a direction of either trust or fear. Mm. And that um, there, it's so important that the, you know, the whole idea of like the Mozart effect or all of the things that people do like babies born out of trauma and tumult or babies born out into, you know, families with harmony, that there is actually an effect on brain development um, mm -hmm. in terms of the organization of the neurons, because there's so many more neurons than the baby can use and they're very disorganized and they need to be arranged and organized. And that's the work of the third trimester of development in the baby. So that's just an interesting thing to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, it's very interesting. It's very interesting and very helpful. And um, we know so much more than we ever used to know about, um, about the in utero impact upon, um, upon fetuses. And, uh, and one of the ways that I see this often is in guiding families, supporting families who are looking to adopt um, and trying to understand the long-term impacts of, in, of, of, um, uh, of, of, of pregnant mothers who were using substances um, and understanding the long-term uh, impact uh, of that. It's interesting, we used to think that development was so much later. 20 years ago, there was this book you may recall called The Scientist in the Crib, where people used to think of the first two years of life as being like, okay, there's some very basic developmental things that are happening, but the really big things happen later. And then it talked about the scientist in the crib that showed how 
all these areas of development that we think emerge later are really um, in, 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 in very significant ways uh, are dependent upon those first two years of life and what's happening there. And then if you go even earlier to in utero um, and you start to see also uh, that deep impact of the, of the pre-conscious realm, if you will. So thank you, Nona, for that, for that uh, very helpful idea. So I would yeah. uh, enter into here. Um, I wanted to bring in the idea of the soul um, as consciousness. You know, we talk about the soul as if it's a thing <laughs> that we have or we don't, and it comes in and it leaves us. But if we think of it in terms of consciousness, divine consciousness, that uh, with that first breath, or that we don't know at what point the soul or that consciousness does enter, it, and this is what this all this modern scientific inquiry is about, um, it's an interesting way to look at it. And uh, that that awareness is a consciousness, and that perhaps when we talk about God, that is our evolved consciousness of being aware of being part of this field of being that we can't really totally understand, but that is alive and it is real. And that with that last breath, it goes back to where? What, yeah. the, the right. consciousness? Right, yeah. Bring that idea into it. That feels to me, Andrea, I'm so glad you brought that up because that feels to me like, um, it feels to me like one of the top three most transformative ideas that religion offers to the world um, and spirituality offers to the world. This, aw this awareness that the soul is consciousness accessed through neshima, through the neshama, right? That the breath is the, is the entryway into the soul and realizing that that's ultimately a place we can tap into, a place where we can reside um, is not only comforting, but challenging. It's not only comforting and challenging, it moves us from the theological proofs of God to the experiential realm of deeper being. Um, and so, so I thank you for that. And, uh, and I raised the question without having any answers of, of what does it look like or feel like to access consciousness, not through body, but consciousness through soul. Right, which is to say, not consciousness, I'm aware of what my body is feeling, not consciousness, I'm aware of what my brain is thinking, right? But a much deeper soul consciousness. Um, and that's why we talk about Shabbat having the Neshama Yetera, this extra soul, this extra soul on Shabbat, Shabbat, where by pulling back, we actually pull into a new space where we can see much deeper. Now, I just want to say something about what Eileen wrote on the side there. Thank you, Andre, for that. That the Torah is dressed. It's funny. You know, you often feel like you're getting dissed. You're getting dissed in, in shul if they give you galila, right? Because uh, you get called up to the Torah. You get an aliyah. You're like, wow, this is great. I get called to the Torah. I make a bracha in front of the whole congregation. Beautiful. And then you get hagba. Oh, okay, hagba. They must think I'm physically strong. I can lift up the Torah. This is a big deal. You get galila. It's like, wah, wah. It's like you want to open the ark. You know, it's like supposed to, it's like a fake honor. It's like, okay, fine. I'll open the ark. It's, it's nice. I get to get called to the front. You know, it's, you know, you know it's like, I want, I want Galila. I'm going to like wrap the, what do you, the band, what do you call the band you wrap around the Torah? I'm going to dress the Torah. But actually, <laughs> what's Yeah, the girdle, the girdle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, thank you. And so, uh, anyway, is girdle an English word or is that a Yiddish word? It's an English word? English word. Okay. So I wonder, what, what do we call it in, uh, like, what do we call it in Jewish? 
girdle. Is it? It's the, uh, okay, I don't know. There's got to be a word for it. <laughs> or gardle. Is it gardle? Is gardle an English word or is that a? Gardle is like a belt. Gardle Gardle's an English word? That's, an, that's a Yiddish word. Gardle, you know, it's, it's like Yiddish. A, it's Yiddish. It's Yiddish. Okay, like a, a like a, a Hasidic man. I don't know if Hasidic women do it also, but a Hasidic man wears a girdle, and the idea is that they want to lower, they want to separate the lower half of their body from the upper half. The upper half is sophisticated, the lower half is unsophisticated. They want to create that divide there. It has to do with the, with the spherot. In any case, Galila in 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 the Hasidic in the Hasidic thought is very deep. You're going to wrap the Torah. You're going to dress the Torah. It's not only a great honor, but it's like um, it is helping to realize the layers of depth and what you're able to access through that dressing of the Torah. So yeah, Lean, thanks for that reminder. Galila actually is, uh, so I finally got to go to an egalitarian um, congregation and the gal asked me what I wanted. And I said, I really want Galila. I've always wanted Galila. Because I don't know, to me, maybe it's like a girl thing when you dress your doll, sorry for being sexist, but there was just something so sweet and nice about dressing the Sefer Torah. And then when you get to put like the crowns on top, it's lovely. Yes. So for me, it'd be my favorite Aliyah to get. Totally. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And, and it's also interesting because um, I learned building off that of this idea it's very profound to dress a child or dress a grandchild, or the truth is to dress a parent. If you've ever been a caregiver for a parent, to dress a parent, it's, a, it's very profound to dress another person or dress a, a partner who's coming out of surgery or whatever the case is. This idea of dressing someone, such a deep care, what does it mean to take care of the Torah, right? To take care of the Torah, to bring, to bring not just a sense that the Torah is kind of pushing on us, but rather we are caregivers for the Torah. We're taking care of wisdom. We're taking care of, of transformative ideas. We're taking care of Jewish history, right? We are, we are clothing it, we are wrapping it, right? In a, it, it, when you view your relationship to Judaism as, as a caregiver, we normally think of it as I'm an educator of a Torah to my child, or I am a, I'm a guardian of the tradition, or I'm, I'm, a, uh, uh, I'm a stakeholder, or I'm a student, but what does it mean to be a care, a caretaker of our tradition, right? To carefully like clothe the Torah, to guard it, to protect it like a child. I mean, that it's a fascinating relationship. Imagine if you were preparing for Pesach Seder and you didn't think of it as fun or interesting. I mean, those are fine words, fine ideas, but you're talking about like, how am I gonna be a caregiver to the Pesach experience, right? That like that is now in my care to kind of pass forward. So it's interesting that 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 idea. And one of the ideas I love, which I would love to see revived even more, is um, you know at traditional weddings. Um, I don't know how this might work um, uh, for for women, but uh, but for for men traditionally, um, a man will wear a kittle at the at the chuppah. I don't know if women are wearing kittles or not. I've, I doubt it because they're wearing a beautiful wedding dress. <laughs> I don't think they want a kittle, a white robe over their wedding dress. <laughs> but, but a man who wears a kittle, the idea there is um, uh, that sometimes the, it, the, um, they walk up and, oh, actually, is Eric still on here? Eric is on here. I, I had the great privilege of doing Eric's wedding. Uh, Eric, 
what was yes. it, 10 months ago? Was it 10 months ago was your wedding? A year ago? No, uh, the, it's coming up uh, T-minus February, it was February 16th. So we're getting very close. Oh my goodness. It was right before COVID. It was my last wedding before COVID. And oh Eric, my gosh, six, yeah, 51 weeks ago. Eric, sorry to bring your, uh, do you mind if we bring your personal uh, journey into this for a moment? Yes, that is quite all right. Okay, so Eric, I, 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 remind me if you wore a kittel or not. I don't. Oh, you didn't. Okay, so we had talked about it. I remember yes, us did. talking about it. And so I pictured you in the kittel, whether you did it or not. And so <laughs> the, the idea of like a parents wrapping their, their son in the kittel um, at the, at the chuppah is an idea of you're now handing over your child to their spouse. You are no longer the primary caregiver of your child. Their, their partner is going to be the primary caregiver for each other. And this is the last time you're going to dress them. The, you know, here's an egalitarian way we can do that, that you, that you wrap them together in a talus. This is normally a Sephardic way, but at the chuppah, if, if parents, any living parents, any invited parents were together to wrap the if it was a if it was a same-sex marriage the chatan and the chatan or the or the kala and the kala or if it was a chatan and kala wrap the couple together in the talis in the talit as a sign of this is the last time i'm taking care of you of dressing you right i'm gonna have a different relationship to you in other ways but um but now you're gonna dress each other you're gonna dress each other we were so excited at the time that we we that was the plan to have the kiddo but if you remember we were just in the zone that, that we just missed yeah. that part. So. so one of the beautiful things about Eric's wedding is that Eric's uh, wife, Maria, is, um, uh, ha- is, uh, is it Filip- Filipino-American? Yeah, uh, yeah, Filipino-American. Filipino-American. And so we did this Filipino custom of, what was the wrapping ceremony called? Um, there's a Philippine custom where it, it was like their String. own version of a kittle. And it was this, in this exact item, uh, was done at her aunt and uncle's wedding and her grandmother's wedding. So this is a, oh, yes. so it had the family history of doing that. So it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful yeah. thing that to bring in an intercultural experience into a Jewish wedding where there's Judaism has so many rituals at the chuppah, but to bring in another cultural expression into that moment can be really powerful. Anyways, let's pause here. Let's hear from someone else. So there's uh, one more very oh. profound instance of dressing. I don't know anybody else here is on the Hebrew Kaddish, but when you dress the Met for the final time to put that garment on. And particularly when you oh, cover yeah. the face, it's just, yeah. it's very, yeah, it's the final dressing. So it's yeah. also very profound. Oh yeah, Andrea, thank you for that. If any of you have ever done Hebra Kadisha, you know that how profound this is. Remind me if I, if I shared, I know we're in session 32 together, so it's hard to remember what I said in session four, but <laughs> did I tell you about Reb Zalman, Shakhtar Shalomi's experience with this? So he wrote his, the last book that was written about him uh, during his life was um, someone in Boulder, Colorado. And she dealt with how he was preparing for death. And one of the things he did to prepare for death, and this is going to sound way out there, friends, is he had them do a mock Hever Kadisha for him. He pretended he was dead and got, and got undressed and um, was like went into a mikvah and had them wash his body. Um, so that he could experience in some way, almost a pre- going back to the pre-conscious, experience in some way what that, um, what that would look like. It was, and it was going to be the exact people washing him that he had designated to wash him after he died, <laughs> right? Um, it's really, uh, I mean, 
for some that might sound incredibly weird and creepy for others of you that might sound like really deep and powerful and both of those are are great um and so but i i i found it just really fascinating of this idea of like trying to experience those moments um in post-consciousness we talked about pre-consciousness and post-consciousness if you will um none, nonetheless well actually going back to the soul we say that the soul is still with the body until burial that is why um the, the body is to be watched right the shomer is with the body until burial that and that's also why jewishly we, we try to have burial as quickly as possible right in in the hasidic world in the in ultra-orthodox world it's like within a day Right, they don't care about people flying in. The aunt wants to fly in. The cousin wants to fly in. They don't care. In the in the more liberal world, we wait for relatives to try to get to town. It might take two days, three days, four days. But in the ultra orthodox world, it's like same day or like next morning at latest. They want to do that. Barrel. Don't care who's gonna who's gonna make it into town. In any case, the soul is still with the body, is still present in this world until the burial happens. And so Zalman was saying, I'm gonna be there in the, my deeper sense at my washing of my body. Um, and yet I wanna be there in an embodied soulful way uh, during that state as well. So you're right, thank you for that, Andrea, because when it comes to dressing with Purim and the masks, and it comes to dressing the Galila of the Torah, then we have the Chavar Kedisha, the, the dressing of the body after it has been washed in preparation for burial. Um. I just read an interesting study in which scientists are now saying that when you die, you know you've died because your brain is still working for like 20 seconds, which is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want, I, there's a couple of complicated terms there. And because there's something high at stake here, Eileen, I do want to explore that. So in there isn't there in the ultra orthodox world there's a critique of organ donation after death, and what and there's many critiques in the, from that world. But one of them is a misdiagnosis of death, the, and what you'll see in the in the American news every year is up oh, someone came back from brain death, and the and the neurosurgeons and neurologists over and over say you never come back from brain death. The only thing that could have happened is a misdiagnosis of brain death. If the brain is dead, it is dead. You can't return from that. And so, um, and so the, the terms that I think are important here is um, de if death and brain consciousness, which is to say, if there's still brain consciousness, then from a brainstem perspective, it wouldn't be called death yet. It would be cessation of heartbeat. It might be that the person, the person's life is irrecoverable, but if there is brain consciousness, let me give it. Let me look at animals for a second. I have argued for post stunning in kashrut, post stunning, of the animal. That is to say, because of the Nazis, the kosher establishments are not willing to stun the animal before the the shechita, before the slaughter of the animal, because the Nazis said the Jews have to stun the animal. The, the Nazis said Jews, the way you kill animals is not humane. Like, is that, is, that, is that sick and ridiculous or what? The way you kill animals is not, is not humane. And so you must stun the animal before. And the Jews resisted. They said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do it. You know nothing about what's humane, literally nothing. And so they resisted that. And because of that, no one is going to go back on what those Jews resisted and allow stunning of an animal 
before slaughter. However, I've written, I've written an article in the Huffington Post maybe six years ago and uh, around um, that we should stun an animal after shechita. After the knife has sliced the esophagus and the trachea, um, there is still pain for 30 to, 30 to 90 seconds, roughly. And if we stun the animal, we knock them unconscious, that, that would re remove that, that last 30 to 90 seconds of, of suffering of the animal. In Australia, they're doing that. The kosher industry in Australia is doing that. And that's an interesting case where we look at this idea of an animal that halakhically, according to Jewish tradition, is dead. It is now dead. And yet there is, it's kind of a fake death and that there's still brain activity that's going on there. Okay, someone else, please. I know we only have five minutes left. All right. Uh, I had just a couple things yes. um, Great. from, Great. you know, I just took a couple notes on what you said. One, uh, the, in the beginning, I mean, I'm fascinated by language of all kinds. And um, you mentioned that in Hebrew, there's no one word, one letter word in yeah. Hebrew. Yeah. What about the? And we used ah, it later so that, on. I, I mean, you said the Ohafta, for example. I mean, which is, a, <laughs> which is something that starts with the word and. But right. the is and, even yeah, though it so, doesn't yes. stand alone. Exactly. It, that, that's it the key point, Cheryl. That's the key okay. point. Is that, is that, the key point is that, what, is, it called a, is it called a prefix? What do you call vav? It's, is that a, called a prefix in grammar? Not really. Yes. It's in, it, it, in, it, well, it, in English, it's called a conjunction because it's, a conjunction. it means it, and. It, a conjunction. It's a connector. Okay. It's a connector. It, it's taught okay. as a prefix. A prefix. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you're right. So yeah, Cheryl, it's a it's a fascinating point, and that would be that would be the uh, that would be the challenge to the idea of a one letter word. And yet, I think you're right because it doesn't stand alone. I think that's the answer. Yeah. Okay. And then the other thing that you mentioned about ayin meaning nothingness. Yeah. So there's a Hebrew letter that's ayin, which uh, when um, my youngest daughter was in Solomon Schechter, her Israeli Hebrew teacher taught that Ian really does have a sound and she tried to articulate. I mean, we, we still talk about it. You know, mm. she's almost 40 years old and we still talk about that, you know, Gavaric uh, White, uh, you know, Weissman said, Ian, you know, it has some sort of a sound. So I, mm. I don't know. I mean, when I see it, I don't, you know, it's a silent letter. That was just one thing. I was wondering if that's where the name of the letter came from also, or which came first. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. To, um, and, uh, you know, to your, to, your, to your, well, you know, we talked last week about, because it was Parshat Yitro, about the mm -hmm. Aleph of, of Anochi, right? right? Uh -huh. Of the idea that the Aleph was the only thing revealed at Sinai and, uh, and the silence that emerges from that. And the ayin is another fascinating case of how the ayin functions differently from the aleph. And uh, you're, I, I have no idea to the second part of your question in terms of the historical, you know, the historical emergence of, uh, of that. But the idea that ayin is nothingness, this is not, not only the basis of existentialism of the 20th century mm -hmm. and 19th century, but the basis of, in Kabbalah, as we talked about earlier with the Ein Sof, this idea of... Um, that nothingness for the rationalists, like in a Maimonidean sense, means um, that that divinity is no thing. Divinity okay. is no thing, and so it's it is nothing. It is nothing. That ultimately the 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 the, the, the olam emet, the world of truth, as opposed to olam sheker, this world that goes back to garbs. Also in Kabbalah, this whole world is olam sheker. Everything in this world is a lie. 
everything, which is to say, it is, it is a lavouche. It's a garment covering up a deeper truth. It is a klipa. It is a shell that needs to be liberated, uh, to, to, um, uh, that, that we need to liberate the essence. And so too, so the nothingness, the ayin of this world is on the one hand to say, divinity is no thing for the rationalist, but then in the, in the Kabbalistic, in the mystical sense, this idea of the nothingness being this pre-conscious, this pre-conscious or post-conscious state. And so I love what you brought up there, Cheryl, in regards to, uh, in terms and, of- And just, just one, more st- one more statement, and that is, it came as no surprise to me that there is no Hebrew word for tact. Oh, that yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's very funny. That's very funny. Yes, that there's no. Yeah, you know, I Jonathan Sachs was not known to be a humorous person. I mean, he told jokes, but that wasn't. You know, you, there's a lot of great traits for him, but but I think he was making a joke there. I think you're right that that there's no Hebrew word for tact. You know, if you've lived there, you know what I mean. You know, I, you know. Let me say one last thing before we conclude. You know, this is Malachi 32, which means we only have, um, you know. 30, you know, six left um, and, uh, you know, uh, six left to go. And then we're going to move into a 40 part series of the 40 greatest uh, uh, debates in, in Jewish history. Um, but but if we, if there was another series we were to start, it would be to look at the Aleph Bet and the meaning behind the letters of the Aleph Bet, because each letter is so deep, just like we're tapping into the Ayin here in the Aleph. Oh, uh, the the um, the uh, Shin. Uh, sorry, the samech, for example, my ring, you, the idea behind a ring at a wedding is, is that it's it's a samech. It's a circle, like a samech. And the samech comes from somech noflim, like we say in ashray, that you lift up the downtrodden. You give a ring to someone to say, I will lift you up when you are down, right? And so each letter has hidden meanings in them around uh, moral and spiritual teachings. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Can't wait to see you soon.